have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to open it to Exodus chapter 15. We'll soon be reading, beginning in verse 22 of that chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find one that will be the same version that we're reading from this morning, and you can find that in the pocket of the pew in front of you. And you can find Exodus 15, the end of that chapter, on page 54 of that Bible. In 2003, uh, Olympia Fields Golf Club hosted the U.S. Open, and my fiancé, who was at the time living in Chicago, uh, we were able to secure tickets to that. If you've never been to a golf tournament, um, you will find that for many of you, it is an exceptionally boring afternoon. Um, I, I enjoyed it thoroughly, but it is an incredibly long and tiring and taxing day because the food costs $85,000, and that's not including the water that is not free, even though there's ponds everywhere. Apparently, they don't want you drinking from those. So... Uh, and it's in June, so it was incredibly hot, even though it was in the southern part of Chicago. And so um, Bree was, we were, we were leaving, and, and on that Saturday, Bree needed to go back up to Chicago. She was at school there, and I was driving back down to the southern part of Illinois, about four hours away, not including the Chicago traffic. And um, by the time we left, I was exhausted, I was sunburned, I was thirsty, and I was hungry. And so we said, hey, well, let's stop and, and get some food. And so we stopped at Olive Garden, and we were going to get food. We were told the wait would be about 30 minutes. Um, and I, I had, again, a, a four to five hour drive to get back home. And uh, so I, I was like, 30 minutes, okay, well, we can do that. And uh, that 30 minutes turned into an hour and a half. Uh, as we were waiting to be seated, we, we had this sort of sunk cost. It was always about to be ready, and they just kept bringing it on. So finally, I was now ex exhausted, um, thirsty, hungry, and frustrated. And finally, they, they brought the salad. They brought the breadsticks as they normally do, and I, I ate my salad with gusto. And I used a breadstick to mop up the 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 dressing that was left, and our waitress came by, and she looked at that, and she said, whoa, did you lick out your bowl? And I was like, oh, lo, there was grumbling in my soul. Uh, I'd known I didn't lick out my bowl like a dog, although given, given the weight, I don't think that that would have been inappropriate. Uh, there are times in which, because we live in this world of, of difficulty, of frailty, of falling, of of pain and frustration and just annoyance, that there are times where we want to grumble. Grumbling is somewhat understandable in this world. This is especially true not just for these sorts of situations, but for more important situations where things go awry. How should we handle those situations? How, how can we voice complaint and grumbling without crossing over into sin? And what's more, what are we to think of God who puts us in those situations? How are we to think of God who gives us situations where we are indeed frustrated and difficult to know how we are to, to manage ourselves in those times where we are prone to blow up in a waitress's face, which I didn't do, but almost. Or when you are prone to just be, be overly excited about something or, or, or you've got a difficulty pressing in upon you or grief or stress or whatever the case might be. What are we to think of God when we are put in those positions? Is this testing of us just another way of saying that, that he is setting us up for some sort of failure? The text before us today is an important text. Not only does it introduce us to the idea of manna, which will follow the people throughout the time of the wilderness, but 
it introduces us to a commonplace occurrence that will happen to the people of Israel all the way through the wilderness wanderings. And that is, they will start to grumble and complain, not just to Moses, not just about Moses, but about the Lord, what the Lord is doing, how the Lord is handling them. As we begin that sort of series of texts, as we move through them, we see the failure of the people of God here. It is my sincere hope that through their failure, we might learn the right way to respond to those same sorts of situations, and more than just that, how we ought to think about God in those situations. Let's turn then and read from our God's Word, beginning in chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elim. All the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, 
What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as they could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses had commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place to the seventh, on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna, or manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness, and when I, when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar, and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is a tenth part of an ephah. This is the inerrant and infallible and always good word of our God. What do we do about their grumbling? What should we make of it? First thing I want to tell you is grumbling is a lack of trust. Grumbling is a lack of trust. The Israelites have been delivered in an incredibly dramatic fashion. One event is growing on top of another. As we recount the things that God has done for his people, it is quite amazing what these folks have seen. Ten plagues, many of which they were set aside from and not allowed to have happened to them. They were then driven out, given gifts by the Egyptians as they went. They were then protected by the Lord. They saw his manifestation in in the presence of a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. They were protected from their enemies. They, They saw a sea open up so that they could cross through. They saw that sea then close back down on their enemies. Gift after gift after gift after gift. But now in the wilderness, they have problems. And and let's be quite clear. These are real problems. This isn't, we don't have anything to drink, 
because somebody bought skim milk and that's not real milk type first world problems, right? This is, this is a real problem. We're in the desert. There's no, no water. There isn't water in the desert. That's like what makes the thing a desert. Food also, because there is no water, hard to come by. These are real issues that threaten their lives. When they say you've led us out here to die of hunger, they're not just saying that. It's an accusation which is not accurate, but nevertheless, hunger and the death that would come through starvation is a real issue for them. And so God does continually what we expect him to. He makes a way for this bitter water of Mara, Mara, which simply means bitter, to be cleansed, to be made sweet, as it were. It just means that it was undrinkable before, and now God, through the addition of this log, miraculously makes it drinkable for them. And then he does one more than that. He gives them this sort of testimony. He says, listen, you need to understand, if you follow what I say, everything's going to go great. It will go well with you. I won't, I won't come at you with the diseases and the, the difficulties that I put on the Egyptians. I am the Lord, your healer. Healer there is not just this idea that he will make you well when you are sick, but healer is also this picture of just a physician. I will keep you well. If you are hungry, I will give you food. If you are thirsting, I will, I will give you water to drink. And he backs us up by taking them to this oasis. We may note, as you read through this, that God doesn't seem terribly put off by their grumbling in this case, which, as I read it, you probably noticed how many times that word grumbling came up. You were grumbling against us. The grumbles of your grumbling have grumbled before your Lord, right? It's just, it's nothing but grumbles and, 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 and this distastefulness of the situation that they find themselves in. Again, we can kind of understand the grumbling in this place. This isn't unknown to the people of God. People of God complain to God about their situations all the time. This is a, a chief feature of the book of Psalms, for instance. David quite often opens up his mouth and utters the complaints that he has about the situations that he finds himself in. Psalm 22 begins this way. Famously, David says there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. The Psalms understand what it means to cry out to God. They don't hold David sort of accountable for, for his grumbling here. As a matter of fact, this is upheld as a good thing. We have this very thing on the lips of Jesus, this crying out. The problem with the Israelites is their grumbling never seems to come to an end. God can hardly do enough for them to let them believe that he's going to take care of them. He has fought for them. He's protected them. He's delivered them. He has gifted them with everything that they need to exist in a place where existence just shouldn't happen, especially not for as many people who are gathered there. And he hasn't done this in some sort of secretive way. If you and I get sick, with some foul disease, and we are you know, gifted health after that. Many of us in here would immediately chalk that up to God's kindness to us. If we find another job right after losing a job, we would say the Lord has provided for us. If we are short on money and we have a need, and then all of a sudden an anonymous donor gives us money, we would chalk that up to the Lord. We do that by faith. We believe that it is the Lord who has accomplished these things for us. The Israelites didn't need that kind of faith. The Israelites had this stuff placed before them. 
God manifested himself before them. He spoke to them, told them exactly what was going to happen, when it was going to happen, how it was going to happen, how it would affect them. There was no secret here. Why did they not believe? In the first week of the manna, they showed that they have no true and lasting faith. They immediately keep stuff that they are told to get rid of, and they, they don't trust that the Lord is going to allow them to have this on the sixth day, bleeding over into the seventh. So they go out looking for more of it, even though Moses quite clearly has said there's not going to be any. And that is the real problem with their grumbling. It is not simply that they're in a difficult spot and they're voicing a complaint to the Lord. The problem with their grumbling is that it lacks trust. It, they just don't trust the Lord. Atheists have this sort of little syllogism that they use sometimes to talk about why God can't exist. And they say, well, if God is, is all-powerful and God is all-good, that evil shouldn't exist in the world, but evil does exist. So either God isn't all-powerful, he wants to do good, but he can't get rid of evil, or God is all-powerful, but he's not actually good. He kind of likes the evil to be around. Obviously, Atheists are wrong about that. There's plenty of good reasons why God would allow out of his love and kindness evil to exist, even over his people. But nevertheless, these two things about God being all good and God being all powerful are routinely the things that Israel seems to distrust. Notice what they say in chapter 16. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. They just... They doubt God's goodness to give them what they want. If he was going to bring us out here to kill us, they, he might as well have killed us in Egypt because at least then we got to sit by pots of meat, which I, I doubt is true. I doubt that they had cauldrons of lamb just boiling all the time. Certainly it is an incorrect way to remember the whole situation that they had back in Egypt, which they just left literally six weeks ago. And they've forgotten about all of the evils of Egypt and all the good of the Lord. They doubt God's goodness. And what's more, just as often, they doubt his ability to actually give them what they need. We're going to die here as though the Lord, who brought plagues, has no way of bringing to them food and water. God, if not good, is not to be trusted. And if not power, powerful, cannot be trusted. But he is both. And he has shown himself to these people as both. As both powerful over all of creation and good to them in every single way. There is no reason to not trust the Lord. And you'll notice a, a real distinction between how the Israelites continue to grumble in a lack of faith and trust and the very kind of grumbling that David has. Because David can begin Psalm 22 by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And finish verse 2 by saying, I cry by day, but you don't answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And then in verse 3, he immediately says this, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. The Israelites do not have trust in God, so they complain about God. They grumble about God. The distinction is David cries out to God. And that is a huge distinction. David isn't complaining about God. David is complaining to God. 
How do you act when God puts you in a difficult spot? When your patience is being tried? When you are annoyed? When you are filled with fear and trembling? Do you think of God as the source of your troubles and therefore an object to be complained about? Or is God the salvation of your troubles and therefore a God to be cried out to? Has God not, through the magnificent works that he has done, whether it recorded for us in the book of Exodus, recorded for us throughout the rest of Scripture, shown to us on the cross, proclaimed daily, seen in the lives of his people, has God not done enough to get us to buy into the fact that he is all-powerful and all-good? Trust in him. Look to the cross. See the mighty work of God everywhere around you and trust in him to provide for you in every distress and trouble. Secondly, God is never one to tempt. God is never one to tempt. God specifically goes out of his way and says that there is a test that's going on here. He says he's going to test them. This test not only comes in the statement here at the end of chapter 15, but I think in the two small provisions that he gives them about the manna. He says, first, you're going to go out and you're going to collect it on Monday. You're going to get as much as you want to. You're going to eat of that. You're going to be satisfied. You're going to be happy. But you are not to leave a mite of it for the next day. You're supposed to take it out of your vessel and dump it outside. Some of them do not do this. Whether it's because they simply forgot, doesn't seem like that is the case. It rather seems like they were just being disobedient, likely not believing that God was actually going to bring manna again. They're like, this is a miracle. We need to keep this. We don't do this. We're not going to have anything to eat tomorrow. And they wake up, it's maggoty, it's wormy, stinks. The second provision is like it, only it's exact opposite. He says, on Friday, when you go out, which is the sixth day, you're going to collect, but you're going to get twice as much. And this time, instead of having that second amount go bad, instead of it being infested with worms and it's stinking and rotting, I'm going to preserve it. So that when you get up on Saturday, there is no work for you to do. You will not go and collect. You will have a day off from your labor and your toil and trust that I will keep it. And still, some people do not trust that God would do it. This manna is this sort of flaky cracker that appears on the ground. It's really hard to understand what it is, which is why it's called manna. Manna just means, you know, what is it? It's hard to describe because not even the Israelites had seen anything like this before. But it sustained them, and it would continue to sustain them. This already leads God to ask in Exodus 16, 28, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and laws? Right? This statement by God is amazing because God knows how long that's going to be, and it's a really long time. This is the equivalent of a child asking you five minutes into a 15-hour trip, how much longer, right? A lot longer, man, a lot longer. How long will you refuse? Forever, forever. So why does God test them this way? Because you and I both know that there could have been a number of different ways that God would have been able to provide manna for them that didn't go through this procedure, so in, in 1 Kings 17, Elijah comes upon this widow who's running out of flour and running out of oil, and he says, make me a cake. And, and she says, well, I can't. I don't have enough flour even for myself. I'm collecting sticks right now so that we could eat and then die because we've got nothing left. And he says, "Now nah, you're not going to run out. You're good. She goes and she makes him a cake. 
She makes a cake for herself. She makes a cake for her son. She does it again. She does it again. She does it again. The flour just never, never seems to run out. The oil just never seems to go away. God could have done that for the people of Israel. They're little vessels. He could have just reached in, grab a handful, and more is there the next time. He could have had this sort of miraculous distribution system like the fish and the loaves. There's a number of different ways in which these sort of provisions, the sort of laws and instructions would have been totally unnecessary. Yet he decides to do it this way, it seems, precisely to put these instructions in place to test the Israelites. And the question is then, how do we think of God? Is he purposefully doing this so that they fail? Is he putting this before them to watch them trip over themselves? Isn't this, in the end, some form of Oh, temptation? Take another example that's analogous to this one from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Jesus was led by the Spirit. It's really important. He didn't go of his own volition. It wasn't just his idea. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That is, the whole point of the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness was so that he might be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, I imagine. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Very same temptation driven out into the wilderness, hungry. What are you going to do? If you are the Son of God, he says, make these stones into bread. Show, prove. Don't trust the Word of God. Do it on your own, Jesus. It's interesting that it is the Spirit who leads him out to be tempted. So, putting this another way, if I took a gentleman who I knew to have a gambling problem, handed him 20 bucks and took him to a casino to say, I I want to see if you can resist. I don't think that we would be too prone to say, now you're not tempting him. I I am directly putting him in the way of temptation, even though I can say, I'm not asking him to gamble for me. I'm not not the one who's taking his money and and rolling the dice. I'm not doing any of that. It's him. I'm not tempting him. Now, obviously, there's a huge difference between me and the Spirit, and and such a thing would be so foolish as to be stupid to do. But nevertheless, what are we to think about the Spirit of God taking Jesus out into the wilderness so that he can be tempted? Does God tempt people? The answer to that question is quite clearly no. James settles this in his typically and rather unnuanced way. When he says these things in James 1, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. 
Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James is very clear. God tests or God tempts no one. No one is ever led away into sin and can say, well, God was tempting me. God was luring me into sin. God does not do that. As a matter of fact, James says exactly the opposite. Only, only good gifts come from God. And God only gives good gifts. Both of those things are indefinitely true. He says, God, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Everything that is good comes from God, and God only gives that which is good. Find that these instructions are good for the people of Israel. He knows that they don't trust him. So how is he going to build up their trust? Well, yeah, you do the odd miracle every couple of years. It's going to be hard to build up that trust. So what does he do? He says, daily. Daily I will show you how I am to be trusted. And, and so you can't keep it. You can't keep it because you've got to learn that every day I'm going to give it to you. And then you're going to do the exact opposite on Friday because you've got to learn that every day I'm going to provide for you. Whether it seems like I'm counteracting myself or not, it doesn't matter. Listen to what I'm saying. And even the gift of the Sabbath here. Notice that it is a gift for them. Look at how he frames this in chapter 16, verse 29. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. And hear Jesus' words ringing in your ear. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a good gift given to them. He's saying, you guys are going out working. I'm telling you, settle down. Enjoy a day off. This was my gift to you. It is good. It is for our rest. The commandments of God are good. They are there for a reason. They're not tempting us to fail, but they are good for us, testing us to see how good our faith is. So what is the difference? What is the difference between the tester and the tempter? How can we look at what the Spirit does for Jesus in Matthew 4 and say that he is testing Jesus to show the metal of his faith, where Satan is tempting him? I think the outcome is the decider. What does the person who is doing this want to accomplish? What, what would be a good outcome for Satan? What does Satan want out of that particular interaction with Jesus? Well, what he wants is for Jesus to make stone into bread. He wants him to ignore the word of God, to ignore what God has spoken to him, to ignore what God has told him, to ignore even the declaration of God that he doesn't need to prove that he's the son of God because coming off of his baptism, God had already declared that to be true. You don't need to prove it. He's already said that that's the case. What Satan wants is for Jesus to ignore the very words of God, to go against what God has commanded and asked. That is exactly the opposite of what we get in the book of Exodus. What God is displeased about is not that they were faithful. What God is displeased about is that they were unfaithful. This is why it's a testing and not a tempting. God doesn't want them to fail. He's testing them so that they can show the goodness of their God in following God, in doing what God asks. They demonstrate the metal of their own faith and the goodness of their God. God wants them to be faithful. Christians, you need to understand this. In whatever situation that you face, God is not tempting you. 
He is not desiring that you fall. He is not desiring that you sin. He is not making your life hard on you. He is not punishing you. He is not wanting to see you fail. God never seeks your evil. He never seeks your demise. And he never, ever wants your sin. Rather, he is placing you in a situation where you can, in a very particular way, demonstrate your faith and your trust in him. I mean, one of the best examples that we have in this comes just before that beautiful passage in Exodus where the Red Sea opens. And every single Israelite is pushed back against the sea. They've got a mountain to their left, and directly in front of them is a charging army that is ready to run them through. And they are crying out. They are desperate. They know that their lives are going to be cut short. They are incredibly fearful. They are shaking. And Moses is like, all right, now we get to see some fireworks from God. So just be quiet and wait for God to do something awesome. That's what God wants from us. I wasn't tempting them to fail in their, he wasn't tempting Moses to fail. Moses' faith got a chance to shine all the brighter in that moment because of the devastation that seemed to be awaiting them. This is precisely what God wants from you as well. In 1 Peter, Peter writes this, In this you rejoice, in this salvation that God has wrought, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." God puts these things before you so that you can see and that all who are around you can see the genuineness and the trustworthiness of your own faith, the purity and the brilliance of your faith. When you were grieved, when you were frustrated, when you were oppressed, when you were exasperated, the trials and the difficulties of life that go on around you, when those are happening, think through this. My God will show himself mighty and strong even in this. This is where my faith which is placed fully and totally in him, might shine as gold. The testing of God is good for us. And God is never one to tempt. Third, Jesus provides in all of our trials. Jesus then provides in all of our trials. Israel should by now know the goodness of God toward them, and they should trust in it. The pessimism that they have about God that will continue for the rest of their lives as they go throughout their wilderness wandering is unmerited, it is unwarranted, and totally unnecessary. God is just kind of piling up the miracles for them here. He is showing them that he is just going to be good to them, regardless of it's where he's leading them or how he's protecting them or giving them sweet water instead of bitter. It doesn't matter what it is, he continually is good to them. But if Israel has reason to trust the Lord, we have more than them. Our assurance of God's love is greater and more powerful than anything that they could have. After all, while God has a track record with them, we have the same track record as them and more to boot. I seem to always be those who wonder, when is this going to come to an end? We know the gods of Egypt. We know that sometimes they're, they're really kind and they're really gracious and then they, they immediately turn in a split second and, and all of a sudden judgment is coming down upon them. When is this God going to show himself like this? When will the other shoe drop? They might worry about that, but we, we can have no such 
No such delusions. As Paul said, if God was willing to give his son, what in the world would he withhold from us? What would God keep back from us? What little graces would God be so petty to keep back from us after paying the incredible price of his son to buy us? If you were to go, you were to buy an incredibly priceless King Dynasty vase. Most expensive one in the world costs somewhere north of $83 million for a vase 300 years old. I'm sure you can put some pretty flowers in it. You were to go buy one, how would you get it home? I guarantee you at $83 million, you're not going to skimp out on getting it home. You're not, you're not going to put a layer of bubble wrap and slide it in a UPS bag and hope that that teenager who's going to deliver it to your house does a good job. If you paid $83 million for a vase, you were going to get it home in the nicest package you can possibly get it in, as protected as you can possibly get it there. If God has spent the time and the effort to send his son so that he might buy you, why would he spare the little graces that are going to get you home? So, we are always to remember the grace of our God, which is there proven in Christ, sealed for us by the resurrection that he has achieved from the dead. This is our guarantee. That is our promise from God. By raising Christ from the dead, he has announced forevermore his promise and his good intentions to bring you home. The Israelites traveling through a wilderness, a desert, we're going to need food and water. So God gives them manna repeatedly. And repeatedly, he also gives them water from a rock. It is not for nothing that these are two images that we are given of Christ. Paul says quite clearly and unambiguously, Jesus was that rock. Jesus himself talks about the fact that he is manna from heaven. In John 6, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers, the people that we're reading about right now, ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is our bread. He is our daily provision and nourishment for this long wilderness that we go through. A wilderness where you will suffer. You will shudder with fear and doubt at times. You will suffer grief and loss. A wilderness where death, physical death, will await you. And yet, all the same, here, promised and before us again, enacted is Jesus Christ and his death the outpouring of his blood and the breaking of his body for us to give us life and hope and endurance. This, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, is the true manna that has come down from heaven. This true bread knew what it was truly to be cut off. Those famous words from Psalm 22, on the lips of Jesus, why have you forsaken me? 
Why don't you step in and stop what is about to happen? But Jesus knows very well. And he would utter the exact same thing, the hope that David has. He is not crying out to blame God. He is crying out saying, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The same God who seems to cut Jesus off is the very God that Jesus has given himself over to, entrusting himself to that God, knowing that he always judges justly, knowing that God to be right and good and true. He does this for our salvation. So let us do the same. My friend, do not grumble against the Lord, for God is always good to you and good to you in Jesus Christ. So let us take, let us eat, and be nourished for the journey and believe. Will you pray with me? Our Father, who is in heaven, pray that you would give us this day our daily bread. May Jesus nourish us today, and in our faith, may he give us life by the blood and body, even here. Strengthen your people and your kindness. Give us perseverance in our trials. We ask all these things for the glory of our God and for the good of his people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.